All right, so we're finishing up page 34, and I want to um, go back to where we finished last week. So if, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 17, or if you're like me, pull up on your phone Leviticus 17. But well, that's still the Bible, isn't it? Whether it's in physical paper or digital form, it's the Word of God. And so we will consider Leviticus 17, 10 to 12, and just a, a little review of the last thing we talked about last week. Leviticus 17, 10 to 12. Who can read that for us, those three verses? Who's got it? Dax, go ahead. Yep. All right. So we have here a message to the nation of Israel. This was, uh, let's see, about 3,500 years ago, 3,400 years ago is uh, when this commandment was given. And God here is explaining to them the importance of blood. So he says in verse 11 that the life is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood, New American Standard reads. And of course, scientifically speaking, that's true. God designed it that way to make a point about sacrifice. Notice there in verse 11, after saying the life of the flesh is in the blood, it says, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. The sacrificial system that existed in Israel that was given by God to them in the law was a very important system of ceremonies, rituals that they had to observe, making a point about sacrifice. Atonement is life for life. Something had to give its life. When it says blood here, it's talking about an animal being killed and its blood being spilled out on the altar. And in conjunction with this, the Jews weren't allowed to eat things containing the blood. That's in verse 12. Notice how verse 12 starts with therefore. It's connected to verse 11 because life is in the blood, because life is in the blood for reason of atonement being made on the altar. Therefore, no person among you may eat blood. All right. Now, it's always important to remember context. We are not Jews. We are not Israel. We are not under the law. If you want, you can eat blood pudding. Any fans? Okay. All right. Well, um, you can, you can eat uh, raw meat. You think of, uh, oh, what's the, the beef that's raw? What's that called? Tartar. Yeah, yeah. That's way too fancy for me. And sometimes mixed with the raw egg too, right? Ooh. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you can do that. You're not under the law. And, and we're not making sacrifices on the altar, are we? I mean, this is, God says to them, I've given you this life in the blood and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Well, we don't do that anymore. So all of this is for Israel. But there's a point there that leads us, of course, to Jesus. And so we want to recognize some of these basic elements that are being described here in Leviticus 17. Very, very important. And I think I mentioned last time, verse 11 is one worth memorizing. It's one worth you know, highlighting or underlining or starring in your Bible, whatever you do. Verse 11 is really important because that ties directly to why Jesus died. And when you think of why did Jesus have to die, Leviticus 17.11 would be a great place to start. Okay? All right. Now, that's talking about sacrifices. All these passages we've been looking at uh, last week and uh, leading up to today, we're talking about the sacrificial system. 
But the sacrificial system was not all that God was doing. It's not all that God was looking for out of his people. He wasn't just wanting Jews to go through cold ritual. There was more. And so let's go to the next passage, Psalm 51 together. Psalm 51, verses 14 to 17. And let's see how it's phrased here that we can discover what all God was looking for beyond just an animal slaughtered on the altar. Who would read these four verses of Psalm 51, 14 to 17? Who's got it? Brandon, go ahead. Okay. Whoa, isn't that interesting? We've been looking at all these sacrifices that have been made from Genesis up through the law, sacrifices that they were commanded to make in the law. I mean, it wasn't an option. That Day of Atonement stuff we looked at last week with the two goats, that wasn't an option in Israel. They had to do that year after year. But verse 16, David declares, You do not delight in sacrifice. You are not pleased with burnt offering. But, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let's make some observations here. One, there is something beyond ritualistic sacrifices that God is interested in. Something beyond that. Something beyond the ritual that God is interested in. Individually, People are made right with God by being broken before him in repentance. That's what he's essentially describing in verse 17, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a heart that is truly sorry for what it has done, a heart that is grieved over the sin that the person has performed. And... The promise in verse 17 is what? what? What's the promise at the end of verse 17? Good. When you come to God with the sacrifice of a broken heart, or repentance, you could say, God receives that sacrifice. All right, so this is, of course, not to say that those sacrifices were optional in Israel. They were not optional. The law was not optional, okay? God didn't give them his commands with thunder and lightning and all of that and say, but if you don't want to, it's okay. All right, that's just not how the law worked. The law was the law. However, what are we learning here in verses 16 and 17? Could someone articulate this for me? If the law isn't optional, what what are we learning in 16 and 17? And expect it to mean anything to God, right? Because you could do that. Of course, there were some Jews who certainly did do that, who had no personal faith, had no personal repentance, no, no sorrow for their own sin. We talked about it last week. You know, it's like, okay, it's Yom Kippur. Put the, you know, load the kids up on the donkey and off you go. And you stand there and it's like, oh man, the game's on. They're doing this thing with the goat. They're taking forever. Uh, you know, it's like, We've, we've seen this, you know, someone's 50 years old, and it's like, I've seen this 49 times, you know, let's just go. No faith. So is God pleased with that sacrifice? No, absolutely not. And, I mean, sad to say, there were some high priests who got to that point. Remember in Israel, there was one high priest at a time, a descendant of Aaron, more specifically a descendant of Phineas, and those high priests, over the course of time, also became corrupt, where it's just like, 
No faith in it, just, okay, here we go. And maybe it was a source of personal pride. Maybe the whole time they were really into it, but they were only into it for themselves. Like, everybody's going to see how good I slaughtered this goat, you know, and how I can spin the little uh, thing, the bowl on my finger that has blood in it so I can go in and, you know, do my thing. And it's just like, all-star priest landed the dismount, you know, a 10 from the Russian judge. And it's like, okay, that is just uh, totally not what this is all about. If there's no faith then it doesn't mean anything. And you see this actually in the Old Testament. The prophets are calling out the priests. The prophets say, your sacrifices mean nothing because there's no faith. There's no repentance. There's no sorrow for sin. There's no broken spirit or contrite heart. Nothing. And of course, the same could be said today if we want to just make, jump ahead and make application for people who get baptized or take communion or go to church or sing the songs or preach or teach or lead the songs or go out and do evangelism even, all without faith. All of that can be done without faith. And what does that mean to God? Nothing. So I could put this in my context. If you look again down at verse 16, I could put this in my context and say, Oh God, you do not delight in preaching. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with my teaching. But what he's pleased with is a repentant heart, a heart of faith. If I'm doing those things apart from faith, they're no good. And if anyone in Israel was making sacrifices apart from faith, it was no good. Okay? Even in the Old Testament, this is really important. I don't have a fill in the blank for this. I should have. So write this down to make sure this is just clear for you. Even in the Old Testament, God's people were always saved by faith alone. They were always saved by faith alone. Okay? Now, were there commands from God? Yes. Were those commands optional? No. Were those commands given for them to work to earn their way toward salvation? No. No. And we'll demonstrate that here in the bottom section on the role of faith. Okay? They were saved by faith alone. Were they still under the law? Did they still, in obedience to God, need to perform the works of the law? Yes. But how were they saved? They were saved by faith alone. Okay, so I'll pause there and see if you have any thoughts or questions before we launch into the bottom half of the sheet there. Doing okay? Right. We probably won't make it to page 35 today, so that's fine. All right, let's talk about the role of faith. Cold ritual never earned anyone forgiveness of sins. It was necessary that Israel's offerings were accompanied by personal faith. Let's all turn to Romans 2 together. Romans 2, 25 to 29. In this passage, it is described how rituals performed in unbelief have always been of no value. Rituals performed in unbelief have always been of no value to God. Very important that you get this. Oh, I guess I did have a fill in the blank there, didn't I? Okay, I'm sorry. Well, hey, now, if you wrote it down apart from that, now you have to write it down twice. It's just like double important. That's good. All right, Romans chapter 2, the last five verses of the chapter there. I'll read those for us. Starting in verse 25, it says this. For indeed, circumcision is of no value or is of value, rather, if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Okay, let's stop right there. How important was this command for sons of Abraham 
to be circumcised in the law? How important was it in Israel? Yeah, I mean, not, again, not optional. Okay, this is the sign of the covenant that God gave. All right. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 26. So, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. All right, so this is a really uh, interesting passage, very important passage, as we understand how faith and commands of the law work together. Again, considering the context, we always want to think about the context of anything we're reading in the Bible. In Romans chapter 1, after you get past the introduction, starting in verse 18, the Apostle Paul describes how all Gentiles who have rejected God are, are sinners worthy of God's condemnation. It says in uh, Romans 1.18 and following that the, what could be known about God has been made evident to them. And when they suppress the truth of God and replace it with a lie, they're guilty. Gentiles are guilty. That's really what's being said in Romans 1. In Romans 2, he says, okay, now you Jews, you're not off the hook either. Just because you're a Jew, that doesn't mean you're innocent from birth. He's talking about how the Jew is actually condemned by the law, especially starting in the second half of the chapter. Let's look at the law, Mr. Jewish man, and let's see how you're doing. Well, how does anybody do with keeping the law? Not well, because the law demands perfection. And how many have kept the law perfectly? <laughs> okay, there you go, right? Only Jesus. And he was able to do that because he is God. And so, as we get to this point here at the, the end of the chapter, what argument is Paul making toward the Jew? He's saying, look, just because you go through rituals, just because you keep the letter of the law, that does not mean you're good to go, Mr. Jew. Because they were, of course, saying amen with him in chapter 1 when they were reading the letter. You can imagine this uh, letter being delivered to a church, and you've got Jews and Gentiles in the church. And uh, Paul's rattling off this, uh, I don't know, diatribe or whatever you want to call it, against the Gentiles that they're guilty in their sin. And the Jews in the room were saying, amen, amen, that's right, that's right. And then you get to this part, now the Gentiles are saying that. Yeah, that's right. These Jews who think they're so holy because they have the law, and because they do all this stuff outwardly, yeah, they're also in sin, aren't they? And so, look at 28 and 29 again. Who is the true Jew in Israel? Is it the one who just outwardly keeps the law? No. Verse 29, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So the hypocrisy of the Jew who keeps the law outwardly, but inwardly has no faith, that hypocrisy will be judged. God sees that. That's not hidden from God. And so he tells those people, you're not true Jews. You may walk around and say you are, but you're not because God sees your heart. 
So um, um, in Israel, you had true Jews and fake Jews, okay? True and fake. And we're talking about Jews here, okay? Sometimes Jews can be, or the word Jew can be understood as, understood as a, uh, what's the right word? Uh, pejorative, no, not pejorative, a derogative term. But uh, it doesn't always have to be, as you can see, it's right here in the Bible, and I don't think Paul was trying to be offensive here. But a true Jew, what's, the, what's a true Jew according to this passage? Okay. One who is believing, and what else could be said about this true Jew? Especially as you back up to, um, let's see, verse 25. Yeah, someone who cares about true obedience, right? Because like with anything, you, I mean, you can think about your, your work, a job that you've had. You know that there are certain things that you could do when you're on the clock that make it look like you're working when you're actually not. Okay? Now, we all can think of coworkers who have done that, but we've all done it to some degree or another, each one of us, okay? Where it's like, oh, boss is coming by, you know, do this, do that. Well, it's the same thing religiously with people who say they're keeping the law and establishing their own righteousness and they are perfect people. They know how to do things here and there that they'll be seen by men. That's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. They blow the trumpet and say, I'm giving my tithe, you know, and they put it in so all eyes are on them. Then they go home and they yell at their wife or whatever. And it's like, okay, do you really care about obedience? No, you don't. You're a hypocrite. And so a true Jew is a believing Jew who cares about true obedience. Now, a fake one then is just the opposite, isn't it? One who is not truly believing. And this is evidenced by hypocritical living. That's what this passage is pointing out. That's what the Apostle Paul is pointing out, is you've got true Jews who truly care about obedience because they have a believing heart. The believing heart comes first, and then they truly care about obedience. And then you have these ones who don't truly believe, and so they're just hypocrites all over the place, so people can see they're keeping the letter of the law. You know, they pick and choose their spots. Those are fake Jews, according to Paul. True Jew is one who is one inwardly, and that leads to true obedience. Okay? Thoughts or questions there? Okay, all right. Quiet bunch today. One of the most important verses in the Bible is Genesis 15, 6. So let's all go back there. We're going to go back to Romans again. You can see that on your sheet. We're going to go to Romans 4. But before we go to Romans 4, let's look at Genesis 15. And instead of reading just verse 6 on its own, let's look at verses 2 to 7. Could someone read that for us? Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 to 7. Mandy, go ahead. All right. So hone in on verse 6 there. <clears throat> Notice it says that Abraham, or Abram at that time, believed. That's a sign, of course, of a true Jew, right? So you can consider Genesis 15, 6, putting Abram in that camp. But here's a, an interesting thought. What did Abram believe? 
Consider the context that we have here, verses 2 to 5, leading up to verse 6. What, what, what was the content or the substance or the object of Abram's faith? Yeah, good. Good. Uh, it would be, of course, out of line, out of timeline, you could say, that Abram believed in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't have that information. This was way before that, right? Um, however, he had a promise from God that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He was looking forward to the one who would come from him. That's God's promise. And that's what's going on here. Abram says, look, the Eleazar, I don't even like Eleazar. No, he didn't say that. But he's saying, look, I'm childless and the heir of my house is this Eleazar guy. So what's going to happen here, God? And God says, you're going to have a son. Wow, you're going to, ha you're going to have a son. Because remember, Abram is how old? Well, according to Paul, he's as, as good as dead at this age, okay? He's old. And he says, how is this going to work? And God takes him outside and says, look at the stars. This is verse 5. Count the stars if you can do it. And of course, then, no light pollution. I mean, you can kind of get to experience this a little bit here and there in our modern day, but you really kind of go to, got to go to desolate places. How many stars are there? Millions upon millions in our galaxy? Here he is seeing all these stars, and God says, your offspring will be like that. He believed that, and because of his faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. This is really, really important. How was Abram considered to be righteous in God's sight? Give me an answer. Faith. Alone or faith plus his own efforts? Faith alone. Verse 6. He believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So we're really going to get into that uh, in the next lesson uh, the sheets I handed out today, 35 and 36, will really get into this, what it means to have the Lord count you righteous by faith alone. We're going to examine that for a couple of weeks. But here's where we first see it articulated clearly that through faith alone, a person can be counted righteous in God's sight. Now, let's go back to Romans again. I told you we were going back to Romans chapter 4. Sorry, we're flipping back and forth a little bit today. But Romans chapter 4 you have the Apostle Paul explaining this. It, this is directly connected to Abraham. Paul's using Abraham's life as an example or an illustration to describe how we are justified today, how we are counted righteous today. So would someone read, I know it's a bit longer, but Romans 4, 1 to 12. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Who will read that for us? Jim, thank you. All right, that is just an amazing passage that ties all this together, isn't it? He quotes Genesis 15, 6 two times in verse 3 and in uh, verse 9. He quotes that verse that we just looked at back in Genesis. And his point of quoting it, I mean, verse 5, again, highlight, underline, do whatever you need to do, like take a picture of it, read it every day to yourself. It's just an astounding verse. How is a person saved, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament? 
It says in verse 5, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. What does our fleshly common sense say? And what does every religion in the world outside of biblical Christianity say? Earn it. Go earn it. God wants you to impress him somehow. God wants you to perform for him somehow. God wants you to show that you're qualified or show that you're worthy. And what does this verse say? That guy is actually not righteous. The one who gets credited as righteousness in God's sight is the one who believes that God justifies the ungodly. The one who does not work is the one who is made right with God. Wow. And he says in verse 6, it's not just in Abraham's life. You see it as David speaks of the blessing on the man to whom, the God, to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Apart from works. Apart from works. Apart from works. Draw a circle. Draw a box. Make a, I don't know, put a red flag in your Bible or something. Apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We're actually going to sing this this morning. This is Psalm 32, and we're singing Psalm 32 this morning to start the service. Justification by faith alone. Salvation by grace through faith. It's the way it's always been. That's how it was in the life of Abraham. That's how it was in the life of David. That's how it is in our lives today. It's by God's grace, apart from works, by faith alone, counting on God to make you righteous, not counting on yourself to make yourself righteous. Thoughts or questions on that? If you've got a question, you need to ask it. Joe. Yes. Yeah, except when it comes to your salvation, are you independent or dependent on Jesus? Independent of Jesus or dependent on Jesus? So you've got to count on him for what you need, don't you? When it comes to making, getting your sin off of you, are you dependent on yourself to do that? Or are you dependent on God to make you clean? So we, uh, especially in the West here, the, you know, not the American West, but the Western Hemisphere, we have a mindset of independence, which is good in the right context. When it comes to salvation, it is not good. We are totally, as Jerry Bowman will often say, this is the way he phrases it, we are totally and utterly dependent on God. Good. Other thoughts? Uh, yeah, that's right. As you allow yourself to be knocked out and you're just lying there helpless on a table, are you dependent on yourself? No way. Yep. You are dependent on God. And it's the same thing spiritually because we need a new heart, don't we? That's what the Bible says over and over again. Can you knock yourself out and perform heart surgery? No. God has to cause us to be born again to a living hope. Remind me at the end, we need to pray for your surgery. Other thoughts? Yeah, or questions? Yeah. Well, because um, I don't want to make this 
oversimplified, but it's because they are more dependent on what they're told by other people rather than looking at the Word of God. Because when you look at the Word of God, it should be rather clear. Those first 12 verses, like you just said, you read it and it's like, okay, did, did Abraham have to become circumcised? No. Did he have to follow steps of the law? No. This happened when he was uncircumcised. Was it by faith plus works? No, it says apart from works. You know, you just read through. It's like very clear. But if you are not encouraged to look at the Word of God and judge all things by the Word of God, you're just dependent on what another creature tells you. And when a group of creatures come together and they are not looking at the Word of God themselves but creating a system, you are now tied to a system rather than to God himself. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Good. Okay. Let's see. Romans 4, 1 to 12, outlines how important faith has always been in receiving salvation from God. Oh, yeah, you can jot these down too. Galatians 3, 6 and James 2, 23. In fact, you know, let's just go there together too. Galatians 3, 6. We'll look at this. Uh, Collectively, Galatians 3.6, who would get um, Galatians 3.6 through 9? Galatians 3.6-9, Mike. And then who would get James chapter 2, what did I say, 23, 2.23, let's do um, 22 to 26, James 2, 22 to 26, who can get that one? Thank you, Mandy. All right. So let's consider these two passages, and the reason why I'm highlighting these is because Genesis 15.6 is quoted in both of these passages also. It's a very important verse. comes up in the New Testament a lot. All right? So Galatians 3.6-9, Mike. All right. Be sure, Paul says in verse 7. It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Not those who work really hard to prove themselves righteous. Because is that what Abraham did? No. If that's what you think Abraham is, then you're going to try to imitate him, but you're actually imitating someone else. If you want to imitate Abraham, you're having faith. It is by faith alone. And so the heart of the gospel is justification by faith. Again, we'll look at this more and more in the coming weeks. Now, you might have some people who say, but wait, wait, wait a second. Works are really important. Our good deeds are really important. And how many times have those people said, what about James chapter 2? What about James 2? I mean, you've heard this, right? James chapter 2? You've heard, you've heard of it? <laughs> okay. All right. So um, you have Genesis 15, 6 being brought up there also. So, uh, Mandy, go ahead. 22 to 26. Okay, again, context is always important. So let's go, um, if you're there with us in James, look at James chapter 1. And uh, James chapter 1, verse, trying to do this off the top of my head, and 
going to take me just a moment. 21. James 1, 21. According to James 1, 21, what is able, what is able to save your soul? The Word implanted. Okay. It doesn't say yourself, right? It says the Word is able to save your soul. But then verse 22 says... Now, knowing that, right, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, or you could say even deceive themselves. And so there's a recognition, of course, in the book of James, and he also talks about looking for, looking to Jesus, okay? But you, you look at something outside of yourself, God himself, and the word that he implants into your soul, that is able to save your soul, the word implanted. Your own works are not able to save yourself. However... The reason why James is writing this letter to these believers is because there have been some believers who have said, your works are just of no value whatsoever. So they would say, perhaps, that salvation is by faith alone, but works have no value at all. Well, that's not true, because what have we already learned? That the one who believes, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, the one who believes cares about true obedience. The one who does not believe evidences his disbelief by hypocritical living. And so it's not that Paul and James are in disagreement at all. It's that this is the way some people have pictured it. They're back to back fighting different enemies of the gospel. You have some enemies of the gospel saying, no, you have to earn it. By your works, you earn salvation. Paul is fighting them off. Then you've got James over here. They got people saying, your works are of no value whatsoever. Your works don't play into your Christian life at all. And James is fighting them off. And so when you read Paul, especially in Galatians or Romans, he's fighting off legalists. And James, he's fighting off those who are encouraging people perhaps to be licentious in their living, free in their living, where they would just do whatever they want because their works are of no value. And so that's why you have these statements that are, they seem perhaps on the surface contradictory, but when you understand they're fighting off two different people and protecting the gospel, preserving the gospel, it makes sense. Because as James describes here, this fake stuff, people who don't truly believe, because it's not just Jews, right? It's anybody who doesn't truly believe, that will be evidenced by hypocritical living. And those who do truly believe, that will be evidenced by them caring about true obedience. That evidence is real. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of works. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. We are Christ's workmanship, or we are God's workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus. It all goes together. All right? And so anybody who wants to break any of that apart is going to have to answer to the Bible, which fights off both enemies. Thoughts, questions on that? That was important stuff. I want to make sure I don't leave you behind before I move on here. Well, you have a couple blanks there on your sheet to finish off this lesson. Sacrifices have always been necessary to deal with sin, and faith has always been necessary to receive salvation. Okay? So thinking back now to uh, what we've looked at in this lesson about the Old Testament sacrificial system, and then, of course, leading up to the final sacrifice, the Passover Lamb of God, Jesus. 
Sacrifices have always been necessary to deal with sin. And faith has always been necessary to receive salvation. Okay? That's where that one ends. So I will... We've got 15, 13 minutes left. I'll pull up the uh, other lesson and we'll just see how far we get. Okay. So this is a very important lesson. This will probably take us three weeks to cover. You can see on pages 35 and 36, there's a lot going on. You've got boxes on it. You don't normally get boxes. All right, so we've got, we've got boxes happening. There's a lot going on. It'll probably take us three weeks. And this is really important because if you're going to spend a lot of time on anything, might as well be the gospel, huh? So we'll just dwell on that for a bit. Gospel basics. The review... Kind of is pointless because we just left that lesson, Uh, but here it is phrased a little bit differently. God's plan of salvation is set up in such a way that bloody sacrifice is a requirement for forgiveness. Life must be offered for life. All of the first covenant sacrifices, you could say the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, all of that was leading up to and foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Christ once for all people. And so today, let's finish by looking at John chapter 10 and marinating on Jesus being the only way to salvation. John chapter 10, some amazing verses here, starting in verse 1. Let's consider Jesus' strong words here. John 10, 1 to 10, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Verse 7, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So... How many doors are there? Verse 9, I am the door, Jesus says. Very important. Just last week I was talking with uh, someone who um, said, you know, I just believe in God. I believe as long as we all believe in God, it's okay, we're doing good. And I said, yeah, well, Jesus, though, you got to go through Jesus, don't you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, that's an important clarification to make. I'm not saying that to disparage that person. I'm just saying... We, we can't just say, you know, any God that you have in your mind is good. Yes. 
yes, that's it. And so we have to, we have to clarify when we talk about who we worship, which God we worship. Okay, Jesus is the door. There are multiple doors. There's one door. And Stan, since you were just kind of quoting that verse, you want to read for us the next passage in John, John 14, 1 to 6? John chapter 14, yeah, 1 to 6. It'll be the same sort of theme. Look for Jesus saying, thee, thee, thee. <laughs> Not a problem. And as... As you hear Stan read this, think about this. In layman's terms, what is Jesus saying in these passages? Okay, I want you to be able to articulate this afterwards. Go ahead, Stan. What a perfect setup Jesus had for Thomas there, wasn't it? Okay, so in your own words here, what's Jesus saying? Okay, yeah. Salvation, heaven, the Father. Okay, you could say all those things. Thomas here is saying, we do not know where you're going. Because Jesus just said, you know the way where I'm going. Thomas says, no, I don't. We don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. So you, you could, they're almost like thinking in two different realms here, aren't they? Where Thomas is saying, give us the map, the steps to follow so we get there. Jesus says, I'm, I'm the map. I'm the steps. It's me. Yeah, right. Yes. Right. Yep, their responses reveal that, don't they? Why do so many people who claim to follow Christ miss this aspect of his teaching? And this aspect being, he is the only way to heaven. Because you'll hear some people say, well, I'm a Christian, but I believe, in, and the way that they phrase it isn't exactly right, because they'll say something like, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. It's like, well, obviously everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But I think what they mean is, all their opinions are also valid. You know, their, their religious beliefs are just as valid as mine. And so I believe Jesus is the only way, but if someone doesn't, that's okay, because they might be right too or they might be right and I might be wrong. Why do you think so many people who claim this Jesus, who says he's the only way, also say he's not the only way? Go. Yeah, right? They don't want to get as specific as saying Jesus for salvation. But I believe in God just generically. What else? Other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you got that right, sister. Yes. This is not about being comfortable. Because we do live in a very PC culture, a politically correct culture. And some people who will claim, you know, to be well, I'm a conservative, I don't care about political correctness, yada, 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 and they claim that they're Christians, you get on this point and they get very politically correct all of a sudden. They claim up, well, yeah, I, I don't know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. Like your soul is on the line here. 
Eternity is on the line here. Um, it absolutely matters. And if you say you believe in Jesus, this is Jesus who says he's the only way. Jesus wasn't going to the people and saying, hey, I understand if you like me or if you don't, whatever. Uh, each to his own. Everyone's entitled to his own opinion. Did Jesus ever say that? No, I mean, again, obviously everyone is going to have their own opinion and it's a free country. Totally accept, agree, all of that. Does that mean everyone's opinion is equally valid? No, because there are some people who are entitled to their own opinion who are flat earthers or people who are entitled to their own opinion who are, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And it's just ludicrous. Yeah, yeah there's a lot going on. The world is a very confused place. Yeah, the father of lies has been sowing tares among the wheat for a couple thousand years, and uh, it shows. Yeah. Other final thoughts or questions here before I close out? Yes. Yes, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to leave too? Because everybody else got their free food and their take-home boxes and went home. And uh, <clears throat> Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's good. Okay, well, let's pray. And we'll pray for Joe, who has surgery on Wednesday. Okay. All right. Internal surgery, but it'll make your life better eventually. The short term, not so much, but long term. Yeah, that's right. Either you'll get, <clears throat> get better or you'll be made whole. Those are two pretty good options, aren't they? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your goodness and your provision today. And we uh, thank you for the opportunity we've had to look into your word and to see some amazing truths that you've laid down for us. And we thank you for the words of Jesus. Help us to really absorb these words that they would take root in our hearts because the word implanted is able to save our souls. Lord, we do pray for Joe and her surgery this Wednesday. Lord, help her to just rest in you, to feel confident in you, to keep that perspective that uh, whether th she's here or there, you're with her. And uh, we just read the words of Jesus that wherever he is, we will be also. Uh, what a comfort. Help us, Lord, to Always be comforted by that, but especially, Joe, this week, and help the doctors to be wise as they make decisions, and that everything would just go the way that it's planned. We ask for your blessing on this and for the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name.